everybody. Welcome to the GLADTRAD podcast, where today we have a very special guest with us today. We are joined by Jeffrey Ostrowski, who is the president of the Corpus Christi Watershed. And aside from that, uh, Jeff's also our choir master and organist at St. Vitus. And uh, I would consider you an expert on sacred music. Would that be fair to say in your estimation, Jeff? <laughs> um, well, I thank you for that. And I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah. Humble. Oh, humble now. <laughs> also, well, very, very I, 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 there, are certain, there are certain aspects of sacred music that I would be considered an expert at, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there we certain, go. Certain aspects. But you want to give those aspects away? Is it Palestrina? Um, I, I don't know that the people would be all that interested in, in that, but I mean, certain, certainly the, you know, the, the spacing of the notes in the Editio Vaticana um, and, and things of that nature, uh, I've looked at a long time with some, some of the world's leaders, and so I'm comfortable in that area, you know. It would be sad if I wasn't, right, after all that time and all those hours. <laughs> as well as all the effort pay off. Yeah. Um, we, before we kind of jump into the dive, which is yeah. sacred music, just tell us a little bit about, about kind of your own journey to, to become the sort of sacred music aficionado that you have, because all of us here are kind of our younger guys, so you know, we weren't immersed, obviously, at least I wasn't, in, in polyphony and chant growing up and everything. What was your kind of experience that brought you to the recognition of, of the importance of sacred music in the liturgy? Well, it was, it was multiple items uh, that converged. And um, so, you know, obviously studies in piano, uh, historical pianism played a huge role in my life. The great artists of the past, uh, Joseph Hoffman, Godovsky, Rachmaninoff, um, Horowitz, um, you know, Levine, Egon Petri, you name it. So these, are, these are people that I spent many, many, many years studying. And of course, I had to study myself to get into college on a on a piano scholarship, we had to play juries every semester. So that's a lot of memorized music, you know, thousands and thousands of notes. And you have very, very good artists looking over your shoulder as you play those juries. It's, it's, um, it's uncomfortable, you know. These are people that are just unbelievable artists. And they sit over your shoulder every semester and you play, you know, a, a lot of memorized music and you don't make a mistake because there's four or five professors waiting for you to make a mistake, you know? So, so that, was, that was definitely part of it, studies of, of music. Um, you know, a seminarian that I knew in the fraternity influenced me towards um, some different types of music. Uh, but but in, a, in addition to my own studies, you know, going to the traditional mass um, from a young age, you know, and, and the, the priest knew I could read music because of piano studies, so he kept... He'd always send me up to the, I wanted to serve, but he'd always send me up to the choir because he knew I could read music. <laughs> yeah. And so we started, we did that every week for many years. And, um, you know, obviously at, at the conservatory, we had a huge conservatory, 200, or it was 75 full-time, 73 full-time faculty in music. Where did you grow up and where did you go to school? The Kansas, University of Kansas. So it's, it's, it's a big music school, 73 full-time faculty. Not, I'm not talking about teacher's assistants. I'm not talking about TAs. I'm not talking about the 
theater voice department. I'm not talking about the music ed department. I'm not talking about the music uh, therapy department and KU actually invented music therapy, just like we invented basketball, believe it or not. Sean, uh, all right. <laughs> I went to school on Naismith Drive. Naismith was the one who invented basketball. But um, in any event, um, you know, the, that's a huge faculty. You have, I mean, the choral department was like 300 people. Um, so you, you're, you're around musicians, you're doing all kinds of stuff. You're learning electronic music, you're learning to harmonize at sight. You know, you're, you're, you're dealing, you're accompanying because of my scholarship, I had to accompany a bunch of different singers and, you know, um, flautists and, and clarinetists and all kinds of people like that. So you're, you're exposed to all these things and we had a great music library. And so I'd go in there and discovered some really, really amazing books and started transcribing music. And, you know, I went from there. Sean, you grew up, you said that you grew up with the, with the traditional rite of the mass. So your exposure to chant polyphony was, was kind of in your formative years as well? I mean, essentially what happened was my mother remembered the Latin mass from when she was little. She grew up in extremely impoverished uh, circumstances, very, very poor growing up. And so, you know, she had to take care of all her brothers and sisters. It was a big family of six. Um, and and lo the long and short of it is that she made a little bit of money at church because she could, she taught herself how to play the organ by, by cutting out a piece of cardboard and writing the keys on it. And she's a very, very good pianist, wow. organist, and so forth. And so, but she, she was making money as an organist. And then all of a sudden, one day, the priest came up to the organ loft and said, you're out of here. We're, we're doing guitars. You're gone. You're done. Um, and so she remembered that when she was little. And then on Mother's Day, uh, maybe 1994, 1995, something like that, when we were real young, I come from a big family of boys, and we have one little sister. And she wanted to go to the Latin Mass because she heard that there was a Latin Mass. Um, and that's a whole other story how that happened. There was a cardinal who asked the bishop to let the priest say the Latin mass and so forth. And as youngsters, we thought it was, you know, the most terrific, boring thing we ever went to in our life. And, but, but she, she, that was mother's day. So we went to it and we kept going back. And, um, and then we met some really great priests, you know, uh, really great singers as well. Excellent musicians. Um, Father Peter G is one of them. Father Valentine Young, other people that would come through because there was no seminary member. So Kansas was in the middle of the, of the, of the United States and there was no seminary. So we met priests from Australia, New Zealand, Great Britain, Germany, Switzerland, you know, all over the place priests would come through and we'd serve mass for them. Um, and yeah, it was good. It was Could good. you tell us how you got involved with the Sacred Music Symposium? Well, that was something that Father um, talked to me about. We were, uh, we wanted to do something to um, we wanted to do something to help sacred music, and we also wanted to do something to make people more aware of uh, the, what we were trying to do in Los Angeles. And so, um, you know, I, I had some really good friends, and, and and we, you know, started out in humble beginnings and it every year it, it was amazing. It was really amazing every year until the pandemic this year. And it was not possible because of the restrictions of, of that the uh, secular authorities have put on 
the cities and so forth, we were not able to have it this year, unfortunately. But what are you going to do, you know? Right. Um, let's, let's, which brings to kind of the point. So it's good that you were able as a young man to kind of hear the history of the church as it's expressed in music. Uh, I've often said, my musician brain often tells me that, you know, despite a lot of the kind of changes that happened in 50, 60 years, one of the things that, that really throws my brain is that you really get your first taste of sacred music, not from a church setting for a lot of us who kind of come to the fullness of tradition in the Latin mass, but you get it a lot of times like from our, our high school secular choir, we'll do Magnum Mysterium or, you know, Ubi Caritas or something like that. So yeah. what is sacred music? What sets chant and polyphony apart from maybe something that you're more exposed to if you're, if you're in the Novus Ordo, which is guitars and tambourines, or piano nowadays sometimes. Wind chimes. Wind, oh, wind chimes. Yeah, we have, a, we have a story of wind chimes for the consecration. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Because the people who hated traditional music and, and the traditional liturgy did not anticipate the fact that secular universities would continue to teach the great music, the true music, um, the best music, period. And so I, I come from the Midwest, and we have <laughs> Sundays are football days, okay? Yeah. That is what happens. We, we have people who prepare for three or four, sometimes even five days for tailgating, and that is what you do. You play football, you watch football, you tailgate for hours. That is what happens. And in essence, in a certain sense, the, the reformers thought they could come in and just overnight just kind of take away football and nobody would care. You, you don't do that in the Midwest. There would be backlash. And the same thing with the university. They didn't get the memo from, from certain reformers that all of a sudden we're supposed to do very low quality, very trashy, very you know, horrific music. They kept doing the best music. You know, whether they're Catholic, whether they're atheist, whether they're Buddhist, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I had professors who were atheists. I had professors who were Buddhist. It doesn't matter. You have to know what the introit for the fifth Sunday after Pentecost is. You have to be able to improvise on that theme. You have to understand canons and all this. It, 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 it doesn't, they don't look at religion. They look at what is the best music, what is the great music. And that is what they studied. And so that's been the lifeline that's kept it going in the sense because so many kids fall in love with this music and it's so beautiful and they, and they just, it's just so, so gorgeous. And it hasn't been taken away from people who are serious about music. And, you know, unfortunately sometimes they go in and they'll even graduate, you know, with a degree or something and they'll go, I'm going to go get a, you know, a job at a Catholic church. And they go into the Catholic church and they see what kind of music is done some places. And it's very, I mean, I, I knew about a, a Jewish person in particular who, you know, was an expert in Palestrina and got all these degrees and, and their plan was to then go work for the Catholic Church. But, you know, that was in the 90s. And uh, oh, no. well, you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine what happened. <laughs> but, it's, but it's coming back. It's beautiful. And it, it is coming back slowly. And, um, you know, people like you guys are definitely part of that. Because no, you, you, you help us with it, but you also appreciate it. And you think it's beautiful. And, you know. Well, well what's funny is, like, we can attest to this. There's is in, in secular Hollywood, everybody knows what chant sounds like. Mm -hmm. And you hear it in popular culture. I remember, heck, in 2001, right, when Halo came out, everyone right. said, well, it sounds, like, it sounds like monks chanting, right? It's a the main theme. And I've never seen an abbey full of, full of monks chanting, you know? 
No, I don't, I don't think it ever crossed my mind to think about, about monks, but I knew that it was something that was otherworldly and that sort of pointed upwards. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That upward, that transcendent nature of music. Exactly. It was transcendent. Would you say, so Jeff, it's funny because I hear people say, well, shouldn't sacred music be about the, the feeling behind it? So if you're, if you have a guitar and a song in your heart and you want to dedicate your, your music to Jesus, how come that's not acceptable for the mass? But you know, we talk about Palestrina and the, the other great masters, both in chant and in polyphony, uh, Bach even, and we see that as something that completely sets apart uh, the, the music uh, specifically for liturgy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you can't go anywhere in the world except for a Catholic church and find the wrong music. I mean, you go into an elevator, there's the correct music. You go to a football game, you go to a football game, there's the correct music that they play. They know what type. You go to a wedding reception, there's the correct music. You go to, you hear a movie and there's the perfect music. You know, a lot of times it makes, it makes the movie. Mm-hmm. Everyone understands this except the Catholic church where you have certain people you know, saying that any style doesn't matter what it is, rap, uh, Broadway, it doesn't matter what it is, any style is acceptable. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that um, we had this just the other day, there was an article that came out. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know who Vladimir Oskenazi was. Uh, you ever heard of him? He was, he, was a famous, he was a famous pianist from Russia. When he was young, he was very good, very excellent pianist. Later on, not so much, but... He was a famous pianist. He even signed that, uh, remember the petition in the 60s with the Evelyn, well, not the Evelyn Waugh, but the, um, who was the mystery writer that they had a petition for Latin Mass in the Agatha 60s? Christie. Agatha Christie. Oh, and uh, if you look, Vladimir, <laughs> Vladimir Ashkenazi, not a Catholic, doesn't know anything about polyphony. He's just a famous pianist. He signed that. Um, but I, I mentioned because, you know, he tells the story of a concert. I don't know if you've ever heard. Have you ever heard of the avant-garde music and classical music? Oh, heck yeah. I know it in jazz and in classical. You'll have like a dead fish. You'll take a dead fish and you'll hit the piano with it. And that's supposed to be the, the music. Or there's another piece where you fire a bazooka into the audience and kill the audience. And that's the music. That's my kind of music. <laughs> <laughs> there's another piece where you just turn on radios to static and you just listen to static. And these are, this is called avant-garde music. Well, Ashkenazi was talking about this one day because he played this avant-garde piece, you know, ugly, horrific, just terrible, awful. Um, and, and, and the composer was in the audience. And, uh, you know, he talked to him after the concert, and Ashkenazi, and he said, oh, you know, I, I really like playing your music. Thank you for composing that music. And the composer goes, really? But it's such an ugly piece of music. <laughs> so Ashkenazi is like confused because it's like he's trying to compliment the guy, you know, and he goes, but you're the composer. And, and he gave this answer, which we just saw on the other day. There was an article about this on Catholic Online uh, or one of those websites. And he said, the composer said, well, but all I see around me is ugliness. So that's what I put into my music. Mm. This is not the tradition of the church. So, so this, this, this argument the other day, just a, just a few days ago, actually, this article was making the rounds. And they're like, well, if you think about it, you know, you know crucifixion is something ugly. And therefore, we should have ugly music, and it should sound like, you know, sound really bad and horrible. And, and that's what art should do. Art should reflect reality. No, it's not the tradition of the church. If you look at the great works, Palestrina, Marenzio, Guerrero, uh, you know, down the list, you know, Manchicor, 
you know, Pierre de la Rue, down the list of great composers, not, not, not uh, charlatans, but great composers. They save the most beautiful music for the crucifixus. Mm. And it's not that it's not that these were highly educated men. Lasu spoke something like 13 languages. It wasn't that he was a dummy and he didn't know what crucifixion was. He did. Okay. But it's not the tradition of the church. The church sees something beautiful in, in, the, in the holy faith. And that's why we call it Good Friday, right? We call it Good Friday. Uh, even though the, the crucifixion, you know, we, we, we commemorate, um, we, we, it's not, we, we call, we commemorate the crucifixion on, um, on Good Friday. And um, that's just not the tradition of the church. And someone's trying to be very clever and they're kind of like, almost like a baby starts to talk, you know, goo, goo, ga, ga, dad, da. They're trying to, you know, start at the beginning and figure out what art is. And they're like, well, if this is ugly, then we should make it ugly. No, it's not the tradition of the church. They need to go and study. They need to open a book. They need to study the tradition of the church because that's not, that's not the tradition of the church. And yes, we know that in a certain sense, crucifixion is something ugly. But it's not, the, it's not the tradition of the church. And so you were asking about the, the correct music. We look to the tradition of the church to find out what the correct music is. We don't start out with the uh, assumption, you know, I don't know anything, but I'm going to prescribe what's for the church. Mm. No, we don't do that. We look, we open a book and we study and we look at the tradition of the church and we follow the tradition of the church. You know, it's, it's this... <laughs> This, this, this modern phenomenon of someone who, you know, well, I spent five minutes studying this, so now I'm an expert on it. No, it's, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's not, it's not the case. So. Could you give us like a, a small crash course? Uh, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not a musician. I, I don't, I'm not talented in, in that regard. You're just not talented. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, <Jordan. laughs> um, So I, I'm not really sure... Um, how to play music or read it or anything like that. But could you explain to us uh, non-musically, in, uh, people who are not musically inclined, uh, what the tradition of the church, uh, the music of the tradition of the church was and how that developed over time? Well, I mean, I, I, I can try. I mean, you, you have um, music that, that came from the synagogue and then Christians adopted that. And we have, six seven hundred years where we don't have any information uh about music because no one knew how to write it down there was no way to you know it's it's like t t trying to tell a blind person blind from birth what yellow means i mean mm. we have no no records of music for a long long time and then the catholics started to write down music and in the ninth century eighth century ninth century and it, it, we have start to get traces of it developing and principles of music um, that everyone followed, whether it's J.S. Bach, whether it's Palestrina, whether it's Josquin Dupre, whether it's Foray, whether it's Durafle. I mean, these people, there is an established tradition of great music that can be looked at and can be studied and can be found. And, you know, again, as a youngster, I did this, I did, I still do this. You sit at the feet of the masters and you learn and you study. And um, so, so those are the, um, but each person, you know, each generation puts a spin on it for sure. You know, Mozart spent his youth copying Bach and we have his, even we still have his books where he copied, you know, the well-tempered clavier. Um, 
you know, and Bach spent his youth studying Palestrina. I mean, they study the masters and sometimes they put a twist on it, but only after we're talking millions of hours of study, do they then put their own twist on it? Um, again, I mean, th we, there are still some disciplines, aren't there, that are, <laughs> you know, that are recognized. Uh, you're a photographer, Rudy. I mean, it's, you know, you don't have a kid come up with a, a, a 1989 Kodak and take his first picture and say, here you go, I'm done. I don't need to learn anything more. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, these are traditions that you can study. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, you know, people still can't fight about whether Godofsky was a better pianist than, than, you know, Horowitz or something, but, um, you know, so, so you look at the, you look at the traditions of music and you, you try to find music that, that is, um, of a certain dignity, a level, level of dignity. It's not dance music. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, you, you, you look at, you look at things like that and you, um, and it's not always easy because Jordan, you've asked about this too. Sometimes um, musical connotations can change mm -hmm. over two or three or 400 years. And that's something I found also to be very difficult because people don't really understand anything about history. So for them, 50 years ago is basically the same as a thousand years ago. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I, I struggle to understand that. I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm a genius and you're not. I'm just saying it's very difficult when literally people, if it's in the past, it's basically the same. If it's 50 years old, if it's a thousand years old. So, so you know, the, the, these connotations and things uh, are not set in stone. Um, but anyway, I don't know if that really answered your questions, but, um, you know, we, we, we look at the masters and we follow, we follow what they did and the principles. Uh, unfortunately, many people don't even master the basic principles. Yeah, I, I think basic basic theory one exercises that you start at. They don't even they can't be bothered. I mean, it's not their fault, right? They they grew up you know playing video games every second of their life, you know. So it's very difficult for them to really know what it means to work hard. Most of us think working hard. Most people in college think it means staying up the night before your exam. No, working hard means from six in the morning until midnight every day for six months. It's not, it's not staying up the night before your exam. That's working hard. And so, you know, these, and I think you can probably understand that too, in terms of when you try to tell someone about something you really love, maybe an old movie or something, and they just don't get it. And you can't really, you know, you just have to, they'd have to put in the time, you know, they have to, they have to put in the time to even really understand what they're, what they're, what they're loving here, you know? And I think that that's one of the reasons why I find the traditional liturgy and especially traditional music contextually transformative for the mass, it sets it apart. You know, I, I've, I've said, said this story a lot, but I never heard of disparages before until uh, you were actually at the helm of the choir, of course, at St. Victor's when I heard it. And I, you know, that's, a, of course, I don't know how old the disparages, I know that's an old melody. You, you can, it tastes of the tradition of the church. And, you know, there's something about, it seems like, you know, all the masters had to put in the time, the work and the effort. This is the same in photography. This is the same in cinematography, of course. But especially in the church structure, it's like our entire objective is to give as best we can back to God. Hmm. You know, and nothing will be perfect because we as humans are not perfect. You know, we need the grace of God, but we, but God's given us so many talents that we can give back to him. And it seems like for most of my musical experience in mass, the answer has been good enough. And, um, 
you know, it's, it's funny because I think what it's produced is we've talked about banal liturgy and we've talked about just, you know, I, I mean, I, we know the whole folk repertoire. You know, I, I, I was in a very guitar tambourine kind of church. And, you know, it was like silly songs around the campfire a lot of times. And it's so funny, like being in choir practice or just hearing real serious music, being at the symposium and you telling us that this is a variation that Palestrina continued on from another one of the great masters, or we have a, we have a melody that here's what it sounds like in the 12 or 1300s, and it's been pulled into the 1500s while still preserving and been rearranged. And you can tell that there's such thought, and it's not enough just to be like, well, you know, it, you know, it's good to serve the Lord, it's good to love Christ, but I've always said that just like there's art that belongs in museums, there's also art that belongs on t-shirts. You know, and <laughs> <that's> <laughs> I think that line is so blurred now, though. Yeah. I mean, you go into a museum nowadays and you see the stuff that's in there. And, you know, part of what you were talking about, Jeff, was reminding me of, uh, you know, when I went to art school, there was uh, a part of the, uh, the curriculum where we were studying, well, what makes, what makes art in a museum so particular, right? And, and we have this this great example of this artist who was uh, Duchamp. Are you familiar with Duchamp? How do you spell it? D-U-C-A-C-H-A-M-P. Well, he's famous no. for being. Uh, no. He's famous for putting a urinal in a an art gallery, mm. and it's signed by a fictitious artist. And so we we were asked this question: You know, is this art? Uh, and, you know, a lot of the people were saying, oh, I'm not sure, you know, that, does, that doesn't really make sense. Um, that was me. That was, <laughs> that was mostly me. And then everybody else was like, yes, it is so thing. <laughs> but uh, eventually what, what, what was explained was that it became art because it was in the setting. Does that make sense? And, um, yeah, I don't know. It just reminded me of that. But... It, also, the music that we're accustomed to hearing. Or That's that what you got out of my talk so far? Sorry, what was that? That's what you got out of my talk so far? No, no, no. no, no, no. I'm, no. It's, a, it's all urinal. That's what we're trying to this say. This is horrible, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> but the music that we were accustomed to listening um, growing up and going to, to the new mass, it sort of reminds me of the offering of Cain versus the offering of Abel. My gosh, to the letter. Um, Look, you have to understand, I mean, this is such a strange world where all of a sudden we we can all have cell phones and make YouTube videos and everybody is, this is a very strange thing that never existed before. Mm -hmm. And and you have to understand, artists have always been in search of one thing, a captive audience. And so in so many Catholic churches, the priest, for whatever reason, doesn't want to pay any money. They don't have any money or whatever. They don't want to pay money to the musician. And so some guy, you know, who had three years of flute or six years of clarinet or something shows up, you know, can I play my thing, at, you know, at mass? Sure. And I don't have to pay you. And it's, and it's like, he, that, this is what he's wanted his whole life, a captive audience to listen to his horrible music. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it really, I really, I really, I don't know even what the word is, contextualized or, or existential. I don't know what the word is, but the, so much about music and, and the way that we become specialists in everything, um, and music has become something that only weird people like and everything, and only weird people can appreciate and everything like that. It, it, it gets back to what it means to even be human and, and, and to grow up with good parents and to, and to learn life lessons when you are young over a period of years. 
not a period of seconds or minutes or days, but years. And, you know, to, 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 I, I really think that there's a crisis, for example, of the family. I think that people are growing up not human. They, they don't have a mother and a dad. They don't have anyone to teach them. They, they have the computer literally on from beginning of the day, sometimes not even turned off at night. It goes all day long and all night long. And it's, 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 it's deeper than just, oh, I prefer, you know, B flat to E flat. It's, it's a human question. Are you human? Did you grow up human? Did you have good parents? You know, and, you know, as we know today, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> fundamental, fundamental questions which are being turned on their head. I know we're not going to get into any of that, but I mean, and that's what's even interesting about, um, you know, the people who are now living marriage according to the church. They're they've, it's almost like society's tried everything else. And so now the, the in thing to do is traditional marriage. <laughs> so it's, you know, the cutting yeah, edge, yeah. avant-garde approach to this, you know, is what if we, you know, just did marriage like the church says and all that. And it's like, anyway, so, um, yeah, I, I, I do think that there's more to it than just a matter of C-sharp versus D-natural. I think that it's, it's, it, it touches on so many other areas. And, and also the, the reforms of the council, the same thing. You had, you know, World War II, and you had this is the, the, the huge changes, not only just, you know, the fact that we could kill whatever it was, 45 million people, if you count the war in Asia and uh, the European theater, but also the fact that it, it, things changed after World War II. Before World War II, there were skirmishes. It was, it was, it was considered the, the gentlemanly thing to do to, to, to fight for a few years, and you gained some territory from France, and they gained some territory from you, and this was something that happened every year. After World War II, no. The, that level of starvation, that level of, of death, weapons, planes, putting, we putting weapons in planes, I mean, nuclear weapons, everything changed. And so then you had, you know, the spirit of the times, right? And then Vatican II happened in the wake of that. Um, so that's why I say it's, it's deeper than just, do you like D natural or C sharp? It really is, you know, d deeper questions of, of integration, I guess, maybe, maybe the word for it. Um, Will you, Jeff? Will you, will you kind of give an overview? Because one thing I've been, I've been kind of thinking of is, is it's all kind of a, a difference fundamentally of philosophy, and it seems to me like, you know, right now in terms of a lot of music that you hear in churches, there's this search for, for the, I call it the emotional vamp, right? Um, I have an extremely negative view of, of general Christian music, and one of the reasons why is because. You know, as we talk about the music of the church and what sets it apart is that you know that it's made for, in, and by the church. I think what happens is we're losing a lot in translation by trying to grab elements of the culture that don't actually belong to the mass because they're not indicative to the church, if that makes sense. So it's like, um, you know, every time I kind of want to, <laughs> every year on Fat Tuesday, I, I sit down with, the, with, the, with, the, with whatever I'm giving up and I'll watch um, whatever mass is going on at the, uh, or last year at the LA Religious Education Congress. And so I've, I've seen the, the Celtic mass and I've seen the, the rap, you know, influences and all this other kind of stuff. And I, I just can't help but feel like once upon a time with sacred music, it was, it was a set inside, it was like the culture setter, you know, that you can, you can be in the 1500s and you understand what polyphony is gonna mean in the 1500s and you can hear how that changes by the 1700s, but it's all very much still 
reverently contained inside the church. But now it's like, well, we have to grab rap and we have to grab rock and we have to grab folk, a ton of folk or, 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 Sp- or Spanish mass, or whatever it is. And it's almost like a, a fight to try to be relevant to that culture instead of setting the music apart from it. Well, and, and I mean, again, not to say that, that, that that's never, ever, ever happened in the whole history of the church. I mean, there have been um, misguided oh, movements. Mind, right? Big well, the, 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 when the papacy was in Avignon is, is, is usually cited. Um, it's, not, it's not that I'm trying to, trying to uh, avoid talking about music, but it just, it, it just goes to, to what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember serving mass, you know, serving mass in the morning and the sun would rise, you know, the sun, the sun rises in the morning and sets at night. These are things that are not even thought of in today's world. If we were the tiniest little bit closer to the sun, we would fry to death. If we were the tiniest little bit further away from the sun, we would freeze to death. We are in an orbit that spins around the sun and has different seasons based on the slightest variation and creates winter, bugs die, bugs come back to life, plants grow, water evaporates into the air, goes into the sea, comes back in rivers. These are the things that are never even thought of now because we're so interested in, I guess, whatever, the Kardashians and all that. But I would say that as a youngster, you know, you serve mass. You go into the sacristy early in the morning. There's order, there's silence. The priest vests himself in beautiful clothing. I don't even know if you've seen the styles today, whether we as humans can even appreciate what it means to to have a beautiful garment anymore. I don't know if we can. I really don't. But as a youngster, you see this and you and you taste it and you smell it and you feel it. And 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 that's another thing. As a youngster, you get up in the morning. The sun rises. You don't you know, play video games all when the sun's out and then, you know, meet with your friends at two in the morning. No, there's an order. And, and that was something, um, again, I think the music goes, goes right along with that. Um, and I don't know if that's exactly answering your question, but at some, at some point we have to make up the decision, do we believe that there is such a thing as order or not? Do we believe that there is such a thing as beauty or not? So, for instance, what you were saying about the music, um, you were you were getting into um, the different styles and so forth. Um, I can't I can't remember where, where you, you, I, I had a point with that where you were going about the um, the um, the different styles and, and it lost me. But it, it gets back to uh, basically what it, what it gets back to is you can turn it around on them. You mm-hmm. can say, well, why not this? They say, well, why not why not why not the rap or whatever? Why don't we replace the mastics? Well, why don't we do them? In other words. You can, you can turn it right back around on them and say, well, if everything's the same and if nothing is better than anything else and everything is by, by definition de facto equal to everything else, then why don't we do what the church, you know, what, what, what the, yeah, what the, the church literature gives us? Yeah. Yeah. And that's because then, the, then, they, then they get very uncomfortable. <laughs> then they get very uncomfortable because they don't really have an answer for that. Of course, deep down, it's because, you know, they don't believe in God or, or they're bored at mass. You know, they, they play crosswords during mass or whatever. Um, but it, 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 there, there's usually, again, the people in charge, there's usually a, a reason for, for what's being done. Um, and, and, and they get very uncomfortable when you, you know, start, start questioning that. So. 
which is exactly what, which is exactly what we love to do. Real quick on that subject. So we've had we had an episode on sacred architecture. And one thing that that's huge for us, of course, is talking about the recovation and then the restoration. And so in the same time frame of sacred music, suppose it's the 70s to the 80s, you know, would you have seen the changes going on in in your local parishes, but would sacred music in its form be preserved in like the bigger cathedrals? Or was it really kind of a, a wipe across the slate throughout that, that decade? Well, that's actually a really good point. Um, and I'm watching the time because I have this other mass here in a little bit, but um, it's actually cool that you bring that up. Like what the heck is going on with architecture? <laughs> like seriously, what seriously. in the world? What in the world is going on with architecture? From Viviana to Our Lady of the Angels. They used to build buildings that were so beautiful, even secular buildings. And, you know, you, I, I, I won't name the diocese, but there's a diocese where they had an old uh, cathedral or church or chapel of some sort. And every single person, every single millennial wanted to be married there because it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It wasn't ugly. And the bishop actually made a decree. No people shall ask to be married here anymore. But it's like, this is not a plot. Like these, someone's not sneaking into these people's rooms and convincing them to like this type of stuff. This is, this stuff is so beautiful. And you know, do you know about the the cathedrals, the Gothic cathedrals, that are um, literally hundred feet high buildings of light. The light comes through the glass in different colors has the Bible stories, this glass that had to be heated up to some unbelievable temperature that I don't even understand how they could heat it up that hot, like some unbelievable temperature, like 5,000 degrees or something back in the middle ages and, and, and late, you know, early Renaissance, they had to, to make the windows have those colors. They had to heat them up. How, how would you even do that? How do you get an oven that can get that hot? These things are built uh, according to specifications that are beyond belief. No matter where you look at the cathedral, from the outside, from the inside, from the corner, from the front, from the back, it's absolutely the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. No matter what angle you look at it, it's absolutely gorgeous beyond anything we can imagine. And there's a bunch of these cathedrals out there. And uh, I'll have to send you the video on one of them where they were able to, um, the, the whole town got together and, and, and did this ingenious metal iron belt to keep it from falling down uh, because of an earthquake or something. I mean, but anyway, it's, that's, that's an excellent example that you're just talking about. Like, seriously, what is happening? Why can we not have a single beautiful building in this town? I mean, maybe, why don't we just do 50-50? You can you do 50 of them ugly and horrible and 50% well, that's what we beautiful. Why is it impossible? It's crazy. I think the sense has been lost that uh, these buildings... Well, we're talking about sacred architecture. So if I limit it to, uh, to church architecture, I think there's been a loss of the sense of the sacred. So people are no longer interested in creating a building that reflects something sacred. It's more of a community center, uh, a place to get space. together. And so that's why you, I think, I mean, I think that's why you see so many churches in the round. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not so much of a vertical ascent to the sacred. It's more of like, Hey, let's face each other. And well, and, and, and to your specific question, Jordan, you know, there were a lot of bad architectural experiments that happened long before Vatican II, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, and, and some of it was a reaction to extremely ugly, ornate, 
gaudy, really gaudy, gaudy stuff. So I think in some sense you could say, look, let's get rid of all this gaudy stuff and have some order and some cleanliness. I'm not saying that that's necessarily horrific, but that's not the brutalist stuff that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's such a, that's such a good point. I don't understand why no, no person will build a beautiful church. Everyone would love it. Everyone that I've ever met loves, loves how beautiful they look, you know, and um, it's, it's, some, it's almost like an idea, you know, waiting to, waiting to happen. So I don't, I don't understand it. Um, um, the music I can kind of understand because music is hard and it takes work. But, you know, architecture, there's so many architects that would love to do that. And, if, and you're built, you know, you're paying a lot of money anyway. So um, anyway, I, I didn't mean to derail you there, but that's such an excellent point. I don't know why. I don't know why we, we can't have just like one beautiful church, you know? No. Yeah. From I've always it's said uh, in this town, especially, you know, you get, our, the Viviana, St. Viviana, is, is now an event space. Um, how are we doing on time, by the, by the way? And some of, those, some of those new ones that they're doing, too, they don't know the classical principles. So they end up building a church that, like, the altar is, like, way too small or way too big. Like, basic, basic things that people used to understand, even though it took them two or three hundred years yeah. to build a cathedral. Yeah. Time-wise, um, I think we're, we still got at least another good ten minutes. Good, cool, cool. So, you know, on your point, just real quick, um, because I've noticed this, you know, how many churches have we been in that have a choir loft? And it's so funny because I know that churches were built with the carrying of the music in mind. You, you've talked about cathedrals, Jeff, in, in Europe and in, in other places that the notes just float to the, to, the, to the ceiling and they don't come down. And there's something really mystically beautiful about that. But now it's an empty choir loft. It's a microphone system, which completely changes the, the tone tenor and the way that we sing. And, it, and it's like, no wonder that we've gone to folk into modern instead, because there's none of the sensibilities I think that the church has really naturally progressed in and how to build and express in uh, sacred music. And it doesn't even make, it doesn't even make any monetary sense. I, I remember going, there's a, there's a huge old cathedral that was built in the twenties with some oil money, massive thing. And of course they recovated it and changed everything and put carpet in or whatever. But then some, then they started to remove the carpet a couple years ago. And if you walk up to where the high altar was and you sing, or you even talk, your voice goes perfectly to literally every part of that cathedral. I don't know who designed it. I don't know how they designed it, but whoever did it knew what they were doing. So of course, when they moved the altar, it's all out the window. You can't hear anything. You have to try to bu- you know, buy expensive systems. And it's, uh, you're depressing me. Glad <laughs> <laughs> trad. Sad trad. <laughs> let me, let me, because I do have this other mask coming up um, here. Let me, let me say one thing about the, uh, the whole notion of the propers. Um, will you tell, will you tell our audience what propers are first off the bat for them to sure sure and part of the fact that they don't know what propers are is part of what I'd like to talk about because it's it's emblematic or indicative of a lot of the problems that that happened in the in the so-called reforms of the Second Vatican Council obviously the council did not make the reforms the reforms came after and in many instances, they had nothing to do with what Vatican II wanted. 
That's a whole other story because Vatican II thought that the Sacred Congregation of Rights was going to make the changes, but that's a whole other story. In any event, the, let's just call them the reforms that follow Vatican II. Um, I mean, you've heard all those stories. I mean, I remember one of the cardinals, <laughs> you know, was saying if we allow the, the greater use of, this was in Vatican II, he stood up and said, if we allow the greater use of the vernacular and, you know, we might get to a point where, you know, nobody knows Latin and we don't have Latin mass and we don't have the canon in Latin and we don't have the ordinary in Latin. And everyone just roared back and laughed so hard. Mm. The entire fathers, every single father in that place was laughing their head off that such a thing would even be, you know, mentioned. But in any way, literally less than a decade. Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah, yeah. Even it was, for, it was like three years later, dioceses were forbidden to do anything in Latin. Like you could still say Kyrie, but you can't say Domine. But anyway, the, the, the propers are, are this, this story I think would, would give a good example of kind of um, something important to know about. Um, uh, every mass had its own set of readings and propers. Um, if you go to the Feast of St. Thomas Aquinas, he has an introit, he has readings, he has a communion. These are little verses that over the centuries have always been sung. And sometimes they're very interesting. The, the one for St. John, for example, the communion for St. John, the, the, the disciple that our Lord loved. Um, the, the, the communion is, is interesting. It, it talks about, um, oh, the, um, well, you have to look it up. It, 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 out of everything they could have chosen from, that'll be your homework assignment. Out of everything they could have chosen from the Gospel of John, look at the verse that they chose. Um, it's, it's very interesting, but every feast had, it doesn't matter. St. Maria Goretti, St. Isaac Jog, it doesn't matter. Okay. They all had their own feasts. Every Sunday had its own, you know, set of propers and readings. So, so, so Easter is not the same as Lent is not the same as Christmas is not the same as Advent is not the same as Trinity Sunday is not the same as the sacred heart. So you had readings and you had propers. Okay. Propers are the, those, those five prayers that always occur in every mass, even in the Novus Ordo, you have the introit, alleluia, gradual, Offertory and communion. So, the whole point of Vatican II, they said they want to, they want to get back to saying the actual mass. They don't want to have hymns during mass that are not the actual mass text. Their whole point was we gotta say these mass texts. We gotta let the people say the mass, not pray at mass, but say the mass. That was the whole thrust of their argument. We have to have them recover the liturgy so that they're not singing at Mass or during Mass, but they're singing the Mass, okay? Sounds pretty simple. So you would assume that you would want to sing the Mass, if that's what we're trying to do, wouldn't you? I mean, is that a fair assumption? If that's the whole point, you know? So, but, but then this thing happened. You had, uh, you know, the traditional propers that have existed for 1,700 years for each feast, um, I, again, it doesn't matter what feast it is. You can take any feast you want. Um, we could use whatever, the third Sunday of Lent, okay? And, and these propers go back 1,600 years at least. And all of a sudden, the committee after Vatican II did something very strange. They changed a bunch of them to, to other scriptures. And this was very strange. Um, in the actual missal, and everything was done piecemeal, you know, they were sending out this, sending out that, you tape in that, you rip out this page, you put in another page, then two days later you get another page and you rip it out. It wasn't done all at once. And so all of a sudden, let's say that, um, 
whatever your the, the the communion for for the third Sunday of Lent was I don't know seek ye first the kingdom of heaven or something okay and that's what it's always been they changed it to a completely different thing the Psalms which is from the Old Testament um, to something from the Psalms it is I don't know whatever like it is better to you know serve God than serve princes or something both of them are scripture you know both of them are beautiful both of them are the word of God okay I'm not saying that there's something wrong with the Old Testament but the question is why we have a song that has existed for 1600 years with this feast why are we changing it what is the point and you look and we're, we're, we're actually still looking it's been we've been looking for 50 years to find out why this was done because you, you, it, it wrecked all the music, it wrecked everyone was confused, and they gave multiple options in addition to that one. Now, Paul VI, in the front of the missile, he says it was, this was done for spoken masses, in other words, masses without music, for better understanding. Okay, so, so it was put in the sacramentary, which is the book of the priest, by the way. Everyone had their own book, I'm sure you know that. The lectionaries for the people that are reading. The evangeliarium is for, the, for the, the deacon who's reading the gospels. The gradual is for the singers who are singing. The sacramentary was for the priest. It has the priest's items, not the choir, not the deacon, mm -hmm. his stuff. And they put them in the sacramentary. They, they omitted the offertory. No one knows why. But they put these things in the sacramentary. And Paul VI said that they were for greater understanding. But why does changing Matthew chapter 6 to Psalm 30 or something how does that help you understand? It doesn't make any sense. We don't know why it was done. It was incredibly confusing. And we're just now, after 50, 60 years, beginning to find out we're actually in the process of translating an article from the 70s right now that talks about why this was done. Mm -hmm. But again, this has caused massive confusion. It used to be that you could go to Easter Mass and you knew what the introit was and you knew, you know, what the communion was and you knew what the offertory was. Is this, this is not, this is not something that's crazy. Am I crazy for wanting that? I mean, this is the Roman rite. You would know that on Easter, this is always the text at the beginning, you know, Resurrexi, I arose and am with you still, Alleluia. They're sticking these other things in there. No one knows where they came from. No one knows what they're for. They're described with all these different things. And so these are the type of, uh, you know, it's a cart before the horse. Was this done to sow confusion? Did people just not understand? You know, were people substituting so many hymns anyway that they didn't notice? Was this a secret plot to destroy the sung liturgy? I don't know. All I know is nobody, and I mean nobody, knows why they change these things and so you know and it's it's it, i have to admit it's kind of fun we've been searching we've been dealing with people all over the world to find out why this was done trying to do some detective work it's kind of fun to find out why but this is this is just you know it's it's completely unnecessary and it also goes against what vatican ii wanted they didn't say hey let's completely change the liturgy to something else for no reason they said, let's get back to saying the actual liturgy. We don't want to be singing all these hymns during Mass. You know, they sang hymns during the, the sermon. They sang hymns during the creed. They sang hymns during the Ite Misa Est. They sang hymns all throughout Mass before the council. And the council wanted to get back to saying the text of the Mass. So how are we getting back to saying the text of the Mass if we secretly change all of them covertly for no reason at all? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> and you know, you're probably, your brain right now is probably must trying to think about this. It's very confusing and nobody wants to hear about it. Bishops don't want to hear about it. Priests don't want to hear about it. This is confusing.
this is very confusing. But somehow we got to get back to what we're supposed to do. Because um, at the same time, Paul VI claimed that the music remained unchanged. That is what he said. Go to any missile over the last 50 years. Go to the missile in your church today, right now. Walk up there and look in the front of the missile and see what it says. He says the music remained unchanged. He said these other propers are only for masses that are red. And sometimes it's, it's translated as red masses. Sometimes it's translated as masses without music. You get the point. For instance, if the priest sang a private mass, he, he would read those antiphons. So why then are now, now people are doing books and trying to sing the, sing the spoken propers and the missile propers and the sacramentary propers. It's, 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 it's not a great situation, folks. <laughs> and now, after 50 years, now people who, are, who have been in favor of Vatican II are now saying, you know, what we should really do, we should go back to having just one text for each feast. In other words, that's what we always had. And you almost want to say, you almost want to say, hey, great idea. Yeah, let's do that. But then you sound like you're, you know, a pre-Vatican II person or something. And, and I've seen books, we just talked about a book like this that happened, that took out all the other options. They went back and did what the pre-conciliar right was doing. So they're, they're saying, we're, we're post-conciliar, we're Vatican II, we support the Reformed liturgy. By the way, we took out everything except what it used to be like, and we're not going to tell you. They don't say that in the preface. They don't say that in the advertisements for the thing. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's very frustrating as a musician, you know. It, 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 it's like, Jordan, it's like if I went up to you and said, hey, I got this idea. I want to tell you about it. No one knows about it. It's this thing that you can, like, put your eye into, and it, like, records, like, what it sees. And I, and I think I want to call it, like, a camera, you know? It's, like, <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. So it's... You know, and I like to verify everything. I don't like conspiracy theories. You probably know that about me. But this is crazy. This is nuts. And I, I you know, it's, it's, I think people don't really like to, to kind of sit down with this stuff and make sense of it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, this, this must be resolved. And it gets back to what we talked about earlier. Why was it, what was wrong with the ones that we used for 1600 years? Well, let me know. Let me know right now what was bad about those. Why can't we use those? Have the decency to tell me why you're changing this without any authority and, and, and keeping it all on the down low. You know, it, it just, it's, 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 anyway, it's, there's a lot of work to be done. And, and it, you know, this is all coming to light. We got a lot of people that are doing great work and, and, and trying to bring back dignity to the, to the sacred music and stuff like that. But I tell you, it's, this should have been, this should have been all settled in 1970. Today's, what, 2020? That's this mm -hmm. 50 years. This should have all been done. The, allegedly, you know, they did preliminary work before the council for years. Fulton Sheen was on the committees that did the preliminary work before the council happened. That was all done, you know, before the council even happened. And just now in 2020, we're beginning to look at a basic thing like the communion antiphon at mass. So maybe that'll give you some small indication of the kind of confusion that's out there and what we're up against. Um, you know, and it's, it's like I say, people's eyes gloss over the minute you start saying this, you know, spoken proper is this and sacramentary that and 1970. Have you ever seen the legislation for the post-conciliar mass? Have you ever seen the book that has the legislation? It's 6,500 pages. Wow. Okay. We're going to read that. Mm -hmm. Not, a, not even some. Oh yeah. You know, 
No, a priest, I even, I doubt a priest would even do. In the olden days, you had, you know, very small instructions about maybe, whatever, 30, 35 pages for how to say mass. Can you imagine giving young priests, here's 6,500 pages of legislation before you can say mass. It's ridiculous. You know, it's, unless, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe that's, maybe that's just what people want. (laughs) I hope not. Well, I don't think they are because, you know, and maybe the last thing we can talk about real quick, I know you have to run, is, is what is the way forward? So you said so that restoration is on the rise. There are more people who are understanding this. There's languages back into faith. You know, we've gone from not knowing what propers are to now essentially rediscovering them, recontextualizing them and everything. So what do you see? I see your work with the music symposium. I see your work with CC Watershed, with the hymnals you've contributed to. What does it look like to you? I think I think you guys are it. I think I think you guys you guys are young. You're 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 married, getting married. Uh, you're going to have kids. You are both professionals, and you appreciate you value music. Okay, you feel that there's something to be learned. You feel that the fundamentals of music are something you can actually learn. It's not just oh go go touch the piano and whatever keys you press, that's beautiful and that's wonderful. You don't feel that way. You feel that there there are fundamentals of music that can be learned. And I think you're both professionals in your field. You're going to continue in the church. You're going to have kids. You're going to want those kids to go learn music. And I think that that's the way forward. We have enough people that that um, know music. Um, you know, in terms of um, university degrees, I mean, you know, people with double doctorates, but they need, they need a place to go to where they can do their skills, you know, and, and you guys are going to be the ones giving the money to the priests to, to support the church, which is a commandment of the church to support, contribute to the support of your pastors. And you'd have to pressure them to make sure that the music is a very important part. You know? Yeah. And I also take donations. No, just kidding. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I'll swing by. I'll swing by later and pick up my. No, you pick up the checks. Checks in the mail. Father Friar's got it actually. (laughs) Send us. Send us the invoice. (laughs) I'm moving. I won't tell my real agency. (laughs) Cool. Well, no, I I do have to go play mass, but maybe we can do this again because I'd like to hear more about you know you guys and everything you know your lives and, and things of that nature. I mean, obviously we've got so much going on in the parish and in the pandemic. Yeah. But um, I do know you're both professionals because I've worked with you, Jordan, and then my wife has seen your uh, stuff, Rudy. So it's, it's good. Those are the, you guys are the people that we need and you're going to have the power because you're going to be the only ones in the pews. You know, the, the, the people that are leaving the church are not going to be tithing. And so you have that professionalism that you can, Go to the priest and say, "Look, I'm 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 going to be a parishioner. I'm going to be here, but music is important, you know. And 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 we need to have beautiful music. And this, we can't just have this guy who took two years of clarinet and he wants to show up and play for free. No, you know. And by the way, I have no problem with the clarinet. I'm just saying that a lot of times you get people who just want a captive audience. Yeah, well, I, I have a problem with the clarinet, but that's only because I'm a trumpet player. <laughs> <laughs> well, I now we can like, go up to the priest. Like the Look, yeah. you've got to watch this podcast we did with Jeff Ostrowski. Uh-huh. Right. He's going to tell you why music is so important. Sacred music is, is crucial to the mass. Yeah, we took a long digression on urinals too. Hey, it's <laughs> all true. fun. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, guys, I may, I appreciate it so much. I better go in here and play this final mass, okay? Yeah, thank you, yeah, Jeff. Jeff. Thanks so much. Thank you. Something halfway decent.
Real, real quick before we let you go, uh, where can people find some of your, your writing or um, it, is it mostly on your website? Um, yes, yes. Just uh, type in ccwatershed.org and we have a bunch of great people who write. I don't like to write per se, but people seem to appreciate it. So that's what I do. So. Great, great. You know, I appreciate that. Thank you all so much for subscribing. If you liked what we had to do, go ahead and hit the like, comment, and subscribe, and the notification bell down below. Uh, it's really, really crazy, actually. We only a little bit ago were asking for 100 subscribers on YouTube. Now we're at 170 approximately at the time of this video. So we're really appreciating everyone who's sharing these videos, everyone who's liking, and the feedback's actually been crazy. You know, we you made a you made a special video on the Luminous Mysteries mm -hmm. because one of our fans yeah, uh, asked, a question. asked a question. So if you have any questions, you know, you can reach out to us on our Instagram. You can reach out to us in the comment section on YouTube. We we love it all. We're happy to take y'all and make little sub videos that we do in order to to help expose the joys of the faith and of the truth. So um, I think that's everything. What do you think, Rudy? Yeah, are we mad about anything this week? Oh, oh man, I feel like there's a lot. <laughs> you want to hit something? There's always something. <laughs> Welcome to Mad Trads. Welcome to Mad. We haven't done Mad Trads in a while. David Haas um, is being uh, is under. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I mentioned this before. Jordan and I and another friend Anthony, who who happens to be Anthony's CPA. I kind of made a joke. <laughs> he has a company. Yeah. He, he doesn't have a company yet. It was more more of a joke. But anyway. Our friend Anthony and Jordan and I, we have a thread going and uh, it's pretty funny. In the morning, we, while I wake up, I, Jordan's usually <laughs> the one that's awake first or, you know, maybe Scheming. Anthony and An Anthony and Jordan are up later or something like that. Yeah. So the point is you wake up and you, you just get like the cancer daily news it really is bad. of just like the worst things that are happening in the church. <laughs> oh we just, we find them. Yeah. It's, it's those Facebook groups for me. I don't know where y'all get your thing. Complicit clergy, maybe or whatever. Twitter, Twitter. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. There's some Instagram accounts too, that I follow that. Uh, okay. Well, and not occasionally. I think their whole thing is posting really just bad stuff. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Temper, temper your, your interest. Uh, you don't, you don't want to, make this a habit yeah yeah <laughs> honestly so what do we have on the docket today what are we mad about <sighs> okay well let's talk about this maybe uh there's a lot of things to talk about we can talk about the fact that this is the week of the dnc and apparently you apparently some people think that you can be a roman catholic and vote pro-abortion every single time and that, that somehow i think that's a good one yeah that's a really good actually one. yeah that's a that's a it's a good psa that is a really good one if you are on the fence and you're wondering can i in good conscience vote for uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for, for the, the Democratic, um, for president. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting off track here. If you think in good conscience, you can vote for those two as a Catholic. I'm just going to be very honest with you. And I'm just going to tell you, you cannot. And the reason is, is because they support abortion. And not just abortion, but like abortion High to, amendments to like infanticide, full blown at this point. Yeah, the, the child is born, partial birth abortion, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So no, you cannot, you cannot in good conscience support that. And I hate to hear people tell me, well, you can't be a single issue voter. Yeah. Because while it's true that if you were dealing with something besides abortion, maybe you shouldn't be a single issue voter, 
But when the fact, the fact of the matter is, is when it comes down to abortion, when it comes down to, to the killing of an innocent life, mm-hmm. you cannot in good conscience vote for that politician because there's a hierarchy of importance and innocent life, a child unborn or a child born and killed as soon as, as it's born. That is like, I'm sorry, but that's like the top. Like you can't, you can't just say, oh, no, it's okay. It's not a big deal because there's other social justice issues yeah, it's only, that you have to there's look this, into. It. There's this great co-op here now, right, where it's like you can't be pro-life unless you're pro-migrant, unless you're pro-economic uh, justice, racial justice, and all these extremisms. And I say, okay, look, uh, oh, you know, you can't, you can't support the, 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 the death penalty. It's inadmissible. And, it's all, and people are trying to really tell you that it's intrinsically evil, which it can't be because that means that there are so many saints and the history of the church has to just be obliterated. St. Thomas More is going to be ripped up and thrown into the Tiber. Um, but this is the big thing. It's people, and it's this weird conflation with democracy. We've been told all our lives that no matter what you got to do, you have to vote. And then mm-hmm. that's your God-given civil right, and you have to do it. And the answer is that it's important to support your country. But there's always a third option. Not voting, you can't, so yes, Rudy's completely right, because the church is completely right. You cannot vote for an intrinsic evil. Abortion's an intrinsic evil. It is way bigger than talking about migration or healthcare or the economy. I hear the economy so many times and jobs. And you know, there are, we're called to understand a lot of issues and look at them in a Catholic light. But there are some things, there's a hierarchy of things. So. Yes, as a Catholic good conscience, if you were trying to figure it out, you, it, is, it is a sin to vote for a person who advocates for the killing of children. And that's wantonly what it is right now with the Democratic platform. In fact, um, Perez, the DNC chair, said a couple, years, uh, a couple years ago, you cannot be pro-life and Democrat. And that's not right-wing, rad-trad conspiracy theory. That's in black no, and white. They literally said that. So Yeah. I mean, I think that was that—that that was the point where I, I realized that I, I couldn't—I couldn't be a Democrat anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you a funny story. I, but before I do that, I want to just—I think you're right, because people nowadays will say, "Well, I, I've had this with my secular friends who are leftists." Yeah. Um, they'll say things like, "Well, why why could you support President Trump when he's not pro-life?" And I. I'll, I always get confused, like, what do you mean he's not pro-life? Because for, for us, we're discussing pro-life like regarding abortion. But for leftists, they, they change the meaning of everything. They move the goalpost every single time. And this is yeah. a leftist tactic. Mm-hmm. So they'll move the goalpost and they say, well, pro-life means to you this. And for me, it means being pro-life is, well, you have to accept LGBT, LMNOP mm-hmm. ideology. Right. And if you don't, then you're not pro-life. Yeah. Um, but it, it reminds me of uh, 2016. And this is a, this is a personal story, uh, but I don't mind sharing it anymore because I think it's, it's apropos to the time mm-hmm. because I think they're there. If there's people on the fence, I want them to know the story. Okay. 2016 rolls around and I could not in good conscience vote for Hillary Clinton because I knew at that particular moment in time, that the DNC chair told us that if you're pro-life, you can't be a Democrat. Yeah. So immediately I was like, okay, well, I can't be a Democrat anymore. Well, who can I vote for? I, I certainly can't vote for Donald Trump because I bought into the narrative that if I voted for Trump, that, uh, you know, being, being a Mexican guy, that there's going to be bedlam on the streets, mm-hmm. that I'm going to get They're going to hold out with, yeah. Yeah, or I'm going to, you know, something <laughs> horrible is going to happen. Yeah. Some 
some white supremacist is going to come and uh, punch me in the face. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I'm going to get dragged out of my car. Oh, hey, surprise, surprise. <laughs> uh, you know, that sort of thing. So I bought into the narrative and I, in 2016, did not vote in the presidential election. Mm -hmm. I, I voted for everything else, but I didn't vote for the president. Yeah. And I remember going home and feeling just so, uh, so like depressed about it. Because at the time, I even had a priest tell me, well, just vote with your conscience. Yeah. And, and you know, you and I, have, con yeah. we, we've been talking about conscience and, and like how you can't really trust your conscience. Yeah, because a conscience can be malformed. It could be malformed. Everyone follows a conscience, you know? Well, we're sitting at the kitchen table. Um, Ashley, I was living in Hollywood at the time, and Ashley had come over for dinner, and we were sitting at the table after the election, and and I was just in 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 anxiety, like the, the highest form of anxiety. I was panicking. I was thinking, how, how could he have won? I yeah. don't understand it. I'm going to die. Jordan's going to burst through your door with a MAGA hat and drag you out to get <laughs> And guess what, people? Nothing happened. Nothing bad happened. In fact, everything has been on the up and up. And you see on the other side of the fence, from leftists in Portland mm -hmm. and Chicago and yep. all over the cities, uh, the big cities, you see chaos and destruction. And we can't, we can't vote for that this time. We have to have four more years of the Emperor Trump. That's the only way that we can guarantee our religious freedom, that we can guarantee in our conscience that we're not voting for somebody who supports abortion. Uh, and look, President Trump's not the, you know, he's not like, the the moral he's not character. yeah oh my god he's not Louis really the ninth is he you know, you know? so yeah. yeah he's not he's not the pope um so, and one thing that's important is again if you you know to not vote democrat doesn't mean you automatically have to vote republican if you don't want to vote don't vote i think we've all drank the kool-aid that we have to vote and what happens is that when you really take a step back if you don't feel comfortable about something what's wrong with abstaining from it What's wrong with being a conscientious, a conscientious objector in that kind of way? Well, I don't want to vote for Biden, but I can't vote for Trump. If that's your your pro pro. First off, y'all got to get on the MAGA train, man. It's freaking <laughs> awesome. Rudy's gotten so red pilled; it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. But trying not to choke on that red pill. Yeah, I know, I know. No, no black pills, you know. Yeah. But honestly, it's 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 what's very funny is it. Um, and take a look at Kamala Harris. This is a huge one. Uh, Kamala Harris was surveying federal judge appointees, and one thing that she brought up was that there was a judge appointee who was a member of the Knights of Columbus. And she was saying that something uh, belonging to an organization like that should call into question your ability uh, to work as a federal judge. So in other words, because of your devout Catholicism, you may very well not be qualified for positions in government. This is a, this is a you know, it's very funny because in some ways that's a very old American idea, but it just gets repackaged because uh, Catholicism, because of just how strong it is in its teachings, uh, is a lot of times the, the last uh, acceptable bigotry, really, to have. And so people go, well, Joe Biden's a Catholic. Don't you want a Catholic president? And I said, yes, but here's a funny thing. Uh, when somebody supports abortion, if you, if you partake in an abortion or you help someone with an abortion, that's a self-excommunication, right? You are willingly separating yourself from the church because you've engaged in activity which is intrinsically evil. That's what it just means, right? And excommunication, of course, isn't like the end of the role. Road. It just means that you need to get back in the grace of God and Holy Mother Church. So this is why there's this talk about if Joe Biden came up to a Catholic church being denied communion, because if you were a public advocate for the killing of children 
of course you're not going to be rewarded with the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is a real, this is a real election. And as Catholics, especially as traditional Catholics, I think that we're understanding the important role of, of politics, how it relates to us. Religious freedom's on the line, brothers and sisters. Uh, you can't be fooled this time. Yeah, this There's time too much at stake. That we're not, the, the centrist idea that you might've had about American democracy from a decade ago doesn't exist anymore. No. These, if you watch the entirety, if you watch all the coverage of the DNC, not just the nighttime stuff, but the daytime stuff, if you've seen our talks and our witnesses on the burning of churches and statues, for sake, that's still going on, by the way. There was just a protest at, uh, not in Santa Barbara again, where was it? Uh, Santa Ines. Yeah, there we go. Another Junipero Serra statue, for heaven's sake. Oscar Cortez. Cortez says that St. Damien, who fought, died, and helped lepers in Hawaii, is an example of white supremacy and colonialism. People, they're not just coming for the genuine American politics. We're not just talking about immigration quotas and whether or not tax rates should be higher or lower. We're talking about the very identity of us as sons and daughters of Holy Mother Church. They're attacking Holy Mother Church. And so, for better or for worse, what we have is we have the forces of evil have manifested themselves in horrid ways. And I've always said this, like, I don't look at Trump for his moral qualities, right? It's, you know, it's, I don't make the excuse for those sorts of things. But God has a way of using people who are extremely flawed for his greater will. He did this with, with, he did this with uh, Jonah. He did this with Constantine. And, you know, we always joke that Trump's a God emperor. You know, that's a Warhammer 40K reference. But in a way, that's, that's what it is. It, it's someone who is going to go to bat for Catholics. And no matter what people who try to support, Catholics try to support Joe Biden, no matter what uh, bishops or people who work for the bishops say, no matter what any of that happens, we know the truth of the Holy Mother Church. And so it's important to really consider that prayerfully this time around, because we're at war and the church is already fighting for its life. So, you know, I, I've been praying very fervently. You know, you should pray anyway for your leader. You should pray very fervently for the president to make the right choice. I think that the best thing for Donald Trump will be to, to bite some of that, to swallow some humble pie, cross the Tiber, and uh, be uh, baptized into the church by Archbishop Vigano. I think that would be the coolest thing. <laughs> the coolest thing. What uh, if happen? that happened, I knew that I would be living in the best timeline. Oh my gosh. That would be, that would be, that would be Charlemagne 2.0. But we're seeing it. We're certainly seeing it now. Uh, the, the complete upturning of culture. Yeah of Western society. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking the other day that uh, an attack on Western culture is really an attack on the church because the church created the culture, the yeah. Western, the How Western the Catholic world. church built Western civilization. So there's a lot at stake. I know you hear that all the time. You know, you, you have to, uh, you have to vote like it's the last or the most important time in your life. But honestly, I think this time, it really is serious. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot at stake. So a lot for you to consider and uh, a lot for you to get mad about uh, <laughs> being mad trad. But uh, we thank you for tuning in. Mm -hmm. And hopefully you enjoyed our conversation with Jeff Ostrowski. Find most of his work on ccwatershed.com. .org. 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 Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. And this is... Uh, this is the Glad Trads. This is the Glad Trads. This is the Glad Trad podcast. That's right. We're out. All right. Take it easy, guys. God bless <laughs> you. May I keep you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.